uh, let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 20, um, and we're going to begin uh, again uh, for I think the third week in a row on uh, chapter on verse one. And this is what we read: And God spoke all these words, saying, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image." Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The year is 1986. I'm 15 years old. And the church that I had grown up in since I was four years old went through a nasty, I mean horrific split right down the middle. And I have to admit to you, I was traumatized as my parents gave me the news that we would be among the half of the people in the church who would be leaving. And that meant for me as a 15-year-old boy that I'd be saying goodbye to all of my friends in the youth group and all of my closest friends. That was kind of my social circle. And it was a tough time for a 15-year-old guy. It was, it was a really rough thing to have to go through. But after a few weeks... My family and I finally landed at a different church um, that was completely different than what we had had been a part of. It was difficult for me as a teenager to kind of merge into the traffic of a brand new social circle. Did anybody ever go through that as a teenager? It's not easy to do. And slowly, however, I started to show up uh, to some of the youth group meetings and some of the functions. I found out that the youth group was going to be having on Halloween night, 1986, that they were going to be having an all-night lock-in. Has anybody ever been to an all-night lock-in? It is the joy of teenagers everywhere and the bane of every youth leader's existence. They're, they're terrible. I, I remember when I was a when I was a, a, a teenager, we'd go to them all the time, have a blast, you know, just go crazy all night long. And then I became a youth pastor. And about 2 a.m., I'm saying, someone kill me now, is kind of the prayer that I was praying. So we had this lock-in, and I decided to show up. But once there, like I've mentioned, I definitely felt like I was on the outer fringe of these already deeply formed friendships. There were athletes in the group, but I was no athlete. I know that's a shock to many of you. There were musicians in the group, but I was no musician. There was even a car guy who liked to race his souped-up VW Bug up and down the the drag of our town. But I didn't have a car. I was too young, and I didn't know the first thing about hot rod mechanics. So by about 11 p.m. of this night, I was looking to make my escape. I was with a lock-in. I was ready to pick that lock and run home, basically. Wondered if I could sneak out. But wandering around aimlessly in this cavernous fellowship hall of the church we were attending, I noticed something that I had an acute sense to notice as a 15-year-old boy. There was a very cute blonde laying on the floor. 
I don't know if any of you had that spiritual gift of discerning cute blondes when you were 15 years old, but I was good at it. She was laying on the floor. She was reading a music magazine with one of my favorite singers on the cover of the magazine. So I approached her and I said, hey, do you like her music? And she said, oh, yeah, I love her music. And so we talked for a couple of hours about all the different singers and all the different bands that we both enjoy. Well, needless to say, as as again, as a healthy 15-year-old boy, it didn't take long for me to find way more things about her to be interested in than just her musical choices, if you get my drift. I kept her in my sights all that night. She didn't leave my sight one time that night. And I noticed how wherever she was, people were laughing. She seemed to make everyone around her happy all the time. She also carried a definite air of respect. It was completely different from the other girls in our youth group, many of whom were silly or immature or just plain shallow. So our family stuck at the church. That that became our home church. And about a year later, I surrendered my life to Jesus. I became a believer. And the blonde and I became fast friends. I mean, really tight buddies. I never missed anything that the youth group uh, did successfully. They actually became my social circle as a teenager. But she was one of my closest friends without a doubt. She was always friendly. She was always helping someone out. I remember her helping a couple of the girls in our youth group got pregnant, and she was always the first one to help them and try to manage that, that scary time in their life. Or, and she had this big, ugly 83 Buick four-door. I mean, this thing was a land boat. And so every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, she would drive around town and pick up about 27 kids in this car. We'd all be stuck up against the windshield, you know. It was, there, were, there were much looser laws than about automobile safety, obviously. And so we drove around like that. And I was fortunately one of the kids that she often would pick up. A couple of times, I had this crazy, insane idea to declare my undying love to her. It didn't go well. She always rebuffed me with a smile and the cruel standby girl, a teenage girl kiss of death. I just want to be friends. Oh, oh, terrible, painful. Any guys relate to that? Not not that you admit that you've heard that before. I watched her over the years. I watched her date and undate a handful of guys in the youth group. But something was strange with this one. No matter what her romantic status was, she was always my friend. Always. Always my friend. She didn't push, put me off or brush me off, no matter the awkward declarations of love I had made. She was so nice to me. And over the years, I grew up and I abandoned the idea of a future with the blonde. I thought I'd get an R or something like that. I just abandoned it. Thank you. I need that. You guys don't know how insecure I am. But my respect, even though I had abandoned that idea, my respect for her absolutely blossomed. It grew. And and our friendship did too. She eventually found a long-term boyfriend that everyone in our church, myself included, was convinced was the one. I mean, we just knew it. They were such a perfect couple. And then it happened. She announced one day that she had really felt strongly that he was not the one and she'd broken up with this boy and and she was setting her mind to just whatever God wanted for her. Married, single, some guy, some, you know, whatever. It just didn't matter. She was just going to set her mind to whatever God had for her. This breakup, especially for the boy, had not been easy. He became really codependent and awkwardly needy. But something else 
happened after that breakup. This boy was out of the picture. (laughs) And many of her friends had gotten married or they were getting married. And guess who had two thumbs and was fortunate enough to become her main social connection? This guy. All the time together deepened our friendship further. And we grew in our respect for each other. And we were amazed that we shared many of the same goals for our life. And Jesus was always at the center of our plans. For about a year or so, there was nothing intentionally romantic. I say intentionally because our hearts were definitely becoming intertwined. It didn't take long for the friendship to begin to deepen and a romantic turn was soon taken. To make a long story short, on December 26, 1992, I asked the blonde, whose name was Ginger Payne, to be my bride. Spoiler alert, she said yes. So on August 14, 1993, six years, nine months, and two weeks after our first Halloween night meeting, Ginger Payne completed my joy when she took my name as her own and became Mrs. Ginger Sharp, which she's been for almost 26 years. I like that story. So, we've been studying the Ten Commandments now for several weeks, and I was struck this week as I kind of looked over where we've been. I was struck how the first three commandments are better understood when we examine them in the light of a union between a husband and a wife, as I've enjoyed for almost 26 years. Do you know several places in the Bible God calls Israel his bride? And, and several places in the New Testament the, the writers allude to the church as his bride. So this is not that far off, what I'm presenting to you. In the first commandment, let me just give you a couple examples. In the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. God requires exclusivity of worship. He will not allow himself to be worshipped in tandem with other gods. This is the whole point of marriage, exclusivity. When Ginger and I made our vows, we used the phrase forsaking all others. Henceforth, I am hers alone and she is mine alone. In the second commandment, God forbids his people from looking in any other place for what he alone is to be for them, a savior, a defender, a provider, etc. Likewise, Ginger is forbidden by our marriage vow to look for in any other person what I alone am to be to her, emotionally, provisionally, sexually, all the way around. Do you remember what God's reasoning for forbidding his people to worship idols was? Do you remember? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is determined to fiercely defend the exclusivity of his relationship to his people. He's absolutely determined to fiercely defend that. Now we come to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. What is God saying when he forbids us to take his name in vain? Well, if you're like me, when I was a kid and I heard this commandment preached from a pulpit or taught in a Sunday school class, 
uh, it was always the same. The teaching, the core of the teaching was always the same. I was led to believe that God, in so many fancy words, was saying, no cussing. That was it. That was the, the summation of this third commandment. No cussing. It was the watch your mouth commandment. As a child, I'm happy to report, and as your pastor, that I became proficient in the use of many words that my parents frowned upon. Ones that were vulgar, ones that were crude, ones that were disgusting. But to take the name of the Lord in vain in this fashion in the Sharp household was a whole different brand of evil. It was big deal. My siblings and I were absolutely forbidden to exclaim, Oh my God, or Oh my Lord. We were absolutely never to use the name of Jesus Christ as an exclamation. The ultimate offense, I mean, this was the granddaddy. This was the big one. The ultimate offense was to combine the word God as the title of the Almighty with the word damn, which is a word used to curse something or someone. This was always, under all circumstances, taboo in the Sharp household. And it was a good rule. Would you agree with that? I remember one evening when I was about 10 years old, came out of my room. And I fired off a blue streak at my brother and sister. It wasn't pretty. Nothing. I'm telling you, it was so bad that I could never run for the Senate now. Because if it ever came out, I would be very embarrassed. So I fire off this blue streak. And included in that blue streak was the combination of the two words that must not be uttered. I had thought that my parents were gone for the evening. But I'll never, ever, ever, as long as I live, as old as I get, will I forget the look of shock on their faces as they exited their bedroom to see who had uttered the blasphemies. Needless to say, I don't remember much after that. (laughs) The prohibition on this kind of irreverent use of the name of God is definitely included in the meaning of of the third commandment. In the book of Leviticus, we read a case study in chapter 24 about this. I'll just kind of cut to the point. This is the judgment God gives on a man who has blasphemed the name. He says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. But it's not only that. It it includes... So many other misuses of the holy name of the Lord. For example, we're not to use the Lord, the name of the Lord flippantly in the oaths we take. By God, or I swear to God, we are not to do that. This can apply to deceptive oaths that we take in God's name or, or invoking God's name to sanction an act in which one is being dishonest. All of that is forbidden by the commandment. But it also includes using God's name for magic or for occultism. It's to use it irreverently in our humor or disrespectfully, as in the case of those casual curses and careless exclamations. In all these things, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, is warning Israel against using his name as if it could possibly be disconnected from his person, his presence, and his power. The point is this, that God is holy, and therefore his name should be regarded as such. It's not to be used as the punchline for a joke or an exclamation of frustration or surprise. It's 
It's, it, it's not to add credibility to our rashly taken vows and oaths. John Piper says this about what taking the name of the Lord in vain means. He says, it's dealing with God and speaking of God in a way that empties him of his significance. You take his name in vain because he is empty to you. Your mind doesn't feel the weight and the fullness of his glory. But there's another side to this discussion and understanding of what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. The word to take in that passage is actually, it's a minor one, but it's a minor mistranslation. A more accurate word from the Hebrew word would be the word carry, as in, you shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. The idea is that the people of God, raise your hand if you're included in the people of God, the people of God are, are, have been given the name of the Lord, and with it there's a sort of stewardship responsibility. How are you carrying the name of the Lord your God? This is not unlike when a bride takes her husband's name, like how Ginger Payne became Ginger Sharp. This, is, this act is not insignificant on any level. This is very significant. That, that it means something. I can't impress that enough. This is, what, this is the basis of that in, in the idea of marriage. In Genesis 2.24, Jesus actually repeats these words in the Gospels. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they become one flesh. In taking her husband's name, a wife is declaring that she is no longer primarily associated with her parents' house, but rather with her husband. When you and I became believers, let me tell you about the transaction that took place. And especially when we were baptized, we were making a similar declaration that we were no longer associated with the world of sin that we were born into. But we were now associated with the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God into which we were reborn. That's what this is when we took his name. That's what that means. So now, if we're believers in Jesus, we carry the name. We're marked by it. It denotes for all the world to see to whom we belong, to who we give our allegiance, whom we love, and whom we are committed to serve. And we are told not to carry this name in vain. The Oxford Dictionary defines vain as something that produces no result, something that is useless, Something that is vain is futile, it's worthless, it's pointless. The name we carry was never, ever, ever meant to be a vanity. Jesus said that carrying this name would have a dramatic effect on the world around us. You remember Matthew 5? He said, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Imagine the horror of a woman who takes her husband's name but refuses to live with him, who who slanders him, who dishonors him by taking other men into her bed. She may have taken his name, but she has taken it uselessly. It doesn't matter. It means nothing. And as offensive as the thought of that is, that scenario describes the Christianity 
of many. We do many, many things, all of us, to give the appearance that we're carrying the name. We go to church a couple times a month. We post inspirational quotes on Instagram. But our hearts are a hive of unfaithfulness and disloyalty to God. And this hypocrisy is intolerable to God, the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for us, so much is this offensive to him that he attaches a clause to this commandment that isn't found found attached to any of the other nine commandments. It's the only place you'll find it in all the Ten Commandments. He says the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's pretty serious. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, there is no forgiveness for this. Now brace yourself, we're going to talk about it. But, that, but when sometimes we read past the clause like that, and where we should pay serious attention, we just disregard it like we do the rest of the scripture. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What is God saying there? God is saying that he reserves the right to define our relationship to him. He reserves that right. We may be quick to excuse our spiritual apathy, our devotional laziness, our rampant hypocrisy, but God is not willing to excuse that. We've carried the name in vain, and for that we will be held accountable. Why is this so? First, because the name we've been given... The name that we are carrying is without a doubt, in an undisputed fashion, the most exalted name of all. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Therefore God, because of Jesus' sacrifice is what the therefore means, because of therefore God has highly exalted Christ and has bestowed on him a name that is above every other name. You want to make a name for yourself in in this world? Good luck, because nothing you can do will ever compare to the glory, the majesty, and the weight of the name of Jesus Christ. Never. It's a major crime against the holiness of God to take such a name to yourself and have it result in no discernible difference between you and those who are perishing in the world without the name. Terrible sin. Much like some wayward, adulterous wife, it demonstrates that we want all the benefits of being associated with the Lord, all of it. But we we have no use for the intimacy and the love expressed in obedience that should be given to the one who's rescued us from futility and from death. Secondly, the Lord will not hold the one guiltless who dares to take the name in vain because it is in that name alone that a man or a woman can be saved. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. Do not be deceived. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you want the salvation of God, you must take the name. God is not progressive enough to let you run around and keep your last name, your maiden name. God is not progressive enough to let you do that. God demands, if you're going to be married to him, that you take his name. He demands it. God is looking to the church. Throughout the New Testament, we see this as a bride. He is not looking to her as a meaningless fling. 
She is not a weekend one night stand. He, she is to be his spotless bride. In fact, that's what he says in Ephesians. It says that Jesus will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Oh, Lord, hasten the day that that's the case. Hasten the day. In order to do so, he himself has made her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We are adorned, if we are true believers in Christ, in his righteousness, which we did not earn and can never deserve. He did it himself. So to carry the name in vain on one hand means to carry it in self-righteousness and religious perfectionism. Why? Because this portrays that even though Christ is the one who did the work to make you holy, you have no confidence in the finality of that work, and you feel the need to add to what grace alone can secure for you. On the other hand, carrying the name in vain means living in disobedience and unrepentance, blatantly disregarding his holy requirements. This means thinking yourself exempt from living a life of pleasing the Lord because of a prayer you once prayed or a ceremony you once observed like baptism or first communion or a catechism class. This displays that though Christ has paid such a high cost for your salvation and sanctification, you can be on cruise control, trusting only in some version of cheap grace that results in no transformation of your life. And I'm telling you that is a fallacy. Jesus said that he alone was the way, that he alone was the truth, and that he alone was the life. And he added that no one has access to the Father or ever will except through him. This, this, stay with me, is the ultimate meaning of you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If you think that you can say yes to Jesus, take his name upon you, and just ignore him, and, and think that you've bought some sort of fire insurance, you're mistaken. Because he's saying, no, no, my, my commands, my way, my life, my, my grace is the only access you will ever have to the Father. That's it. So many claim to have taken the name, they carry it, but Jesus said you'll recognize them by their fruits. So the question is, does your life or mine display the single-hearted devotion of a bride who has gladly taken the name of her beloved? Or are we just exposed by all of our other loves as frauds? Know this, to claim to carry the name, and yet to do so in a meaningless way, devoid of evidence, is the express lane to destruction. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So today, if that describes you, can I invite you to come to the Lord? Can I invite you to recognize the fact that you're in a wayward place and return to the lover of your soul? Can you... Once again, take his name, gladly living your life as the beloved of the Lord. Some of you who are truly devoted to God have struggles like the rest of us, battles with sin like the rest of us. Some of you may realize that there are some real critical areas of your life where a hypocrisy has blossomed and 
and you've carried the name of the Lord your God in vain. Can I just invite you today to simply repent of those areas where you haven't trusted him, where your, your heart has you know, declared that, you, that he is the Lord and that you've taken his name, but your actions just are completely away from that. Can, you, can I just invite you today, as I said earlier, to return joyfully to the arms of the one that the Bible describes as the lover of your soul. Come on back. Come on back. Some of you may have realized as you heard these words that your previous profession of belonging to God has largely been a sham. And today you need to give yourself fully. Without all of your prior reservations and hypocrisies to the Lord Jesus this morning. Come running. Take his name. Others of you may have to be honest and admit that you've never entrusted yourself to the love of God as found in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, it's the cross where we see the love of God most clearly. In fact, this is the way Romans puts it. It says that God shows his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till you got your act together because guess what? You ain't never going to get your act together. Until he comes and makes you new, you are doomed to your life of futility. But even in that time when everything was futile and everything was just a joke, even in that time, God loved us enough that Jesus died on the cross for us. Today would be a great day to give yourself fully to Christ, trusting him entirely and taking his name, but not in vain, but so that you could be made brand new. He wants to put his ring on your finger and call you his own. You'll never regret that decision. Life is still going to be challenging. I'm not going to lie to you. But it'll be lived in the context of a God who moved heaven and hell, not only to make you new, but to make you his. What more could you ask for? What better deal are you going to get anywhere? No matter which category you're in, the communion table, which we celebrate every week, is is a great place to address our vanities. It's hard to be vain and self-centered when you're thinking about the, the death of a Savior. It's a great place to address your vanities. Like I said last week, this is a place where we remember just who Jesus really is and who he should be in our lives. Oh, yeah. It's a great place to repent since we're on this marriage theme, it's a great place to renew your vows. Great place to renew your vows as we feast together on the broken body and the shed blood in the bread and in the cup. So I want to invite you to come to the table. And don't just come. Listen to me, please. Listen clearly. Please don't come to the table this morning just so you can do one more religious ceremony especially not after this message. That would be the highest definition of taking the Lord's name and taking his suffering in vain. Instead, come to these tables and reclaim, if you need to, what you once had. Or to claim what you need from the storehouses of God's boundless grace. Would you stand with me?
Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. If I could have my communion helpers too, by the way. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said these words. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Ginger Payne became Ginger Sharp, I took a ring, a little band of gold, and I put it on her finger as a symbol of my undying commitment to her that until I drew my last breath, I belonged to her and her only. Jesus took his body, and he had it broken for you. And he said, this is my symbol to you that I ain't going anywhere, that I will be with you forever. I will, I will take you as my own forever. That's, all he, that's, what, that's what he did. And then he even said before he ascended into heaven, he said, and I am with you always, even to the end of the world. It's his symbol to you. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, that the blood of this cup was the dowry that Jesus paid for his bride. Back in that time, husbands would have to come up with quite a gift to the father of the bride to purchase the bride. And Jesus held nothing back. He had been the king of the universe for all eternity. And he laid aside all of that, took on humanity, had his body broken, his blood spilled to pay the price for this bride. Kind of makes you feel pretty special, doesn't it? He, did, he spilled his blood for this bride. And that's what we're symbolizing here today. So I just want to urge you. I don't even want to encourage you. I want to urge you. I want to beseech you this morning to come to this table and be willing to renew your vows, to take his name, thank him for what he purchased for you. Thank you for the symbol that he's given you, so much better than a band of gold. The symbol that he has given you of his own broken body, that he is with you forever. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. If you have business to do with God, do it. Don't pretend like it's not needing to be done. Do it. Make it right. Seek forgiveness. Repent and turn from your wicked ways and come to the Lord and be changed and be welcomed back. Be welcomed back. Bearing His name. Carrying His name. Taking His name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the broken body, the, the spilled blood of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that that verse that we read from Romans tells us that, that you did not wait for us to become perfect. You didn't wait for us to get our act together. You didn't wait for us to be worthy of such a gift. But Lord, you did it while we were still sinners, while we were at the worst of who we would ever be. You did this. God, forgive us for thinking that we could 
with some moral exertion make ourselves worthy of such a gift. Forgive us for that. God, forgive us for the flippant and casual and half-hearted way in which we have carried the name of the Lord. God, forgive us for the ways in which we have have borne the name and dishonored you with our pride and our lust and our anger and our fear and our doubt. Forgive us, Lord, and welcome us back. Let your broken body heal us. Let your spilled blood cleanse us this morning. And Lord, we pray that we would not take your name, that we would not carry your name in vain, but that we would be the light of the world, a city set on a hill, not hidden under a bushel, but God, that would demonstrate the beauty and the glory that is bestowed on the bride who belongs to Christ. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.